0: Of, like, committed to this. We're gonna do like 30 days of healthy eating and trying to get everything right, you know, just try to really orient ourselves. Well, that, that those 30 days end on February 3rd for me, so today would become like the ultimate day of torture. I'm talking to my friends, you know, and they're like, Oh, so you're gonna be hanging around like the radishes and the like carrots and everybody else is like nachos and bean dip and everything else. i be like, Yes, that's just, I just have a, I committed to 30 days. And, uh, just, if you want to make fun of someone, I just encourage you to make fun of our high school pastor who was like, he's all about this 30 days of health. And he's like, I'm just, I'm blowing it off a I just, I'm going 27 days. I'm like, you coward. So you know what? There are some people in this church with some integrity and some people without it. Uh, I just want to tell you last week, if you're with us, it was a, it was a, it was, you know, a beautiful weekend for us as if you're not, if you're new with us, this won't make any sense, but, um, Last week we said, you know, we kind of sent off our our, uh, worship pastor named Ethan, who is unbelievably gifted, and um, we got to bless him. And I just want to affirm you guys as a church for how you responded. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, not only responding to him and to his wife Erin, but also to how you responded to what God is doing. You know, there was some real passionate outpouring of what God's doing in this room, and, you know, we believe as a group of people, we say this often, that we are a group of people who are doing our best trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and how to love other people. And um, in so many ways, when we do, when we partake or enjoy or are a part of worship, what we're doing is we're orienting our hearts more toward Jesus. And it's not because we're perfect. It's only because we know we need God in our life and we know that he is the answer. And you guys responded beautifully last week. And I just want you to know, the church became something, I think, last week that you already wanted to become. And I just want to continue to encourage you. This is what God intends to do in our church if you're with us, if you're new with us. It'll happen again this week. You'll go, oh, that's what they meant. okay? But I just want you to know, I'm very, very excited about what what God's doing in our our midst. And as we're in our series called Unleash the Impossible, it's been a very, very cool series. A lot of great responses from a lot of you. A lot of great different conversations. People beginning to wrestle with things maybe they've never wrestled with before. If you're new with us, great series to be here. Great day to be here as well. And the whole idea, as I told you, that whole idea of this idea of Unleash the Impossible came out of a leadership conversation. A lot of us volunteer leaders gathered, some other folks got together, and we had a conversation about what would God do? In some ways, it's kind of like you were describing the If Conference, Jennifer. It's like this idea of, you know, what could God do? I mean, we already know, we we have an idea, we pretty much have a lid on that, but what if it was way bigger than that? What if, in some way, God could do something, you know, in us and through us that we never would have imagined? And so, um, one of the things I want to, as we've been saying each week, is that not only do we want God to do something in us and through us, but I think what I want to do is just even more so this week as we talk about some stuff, is what does God do through us for each other, specifically for people in this room? And we're going to put that kind of on display a little bit. And throughout the whole series, we've been using this verse. It's in John chapter 14, verse 12. It says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples at the Last Supper. And he's about ready to go onto the cross, and he tells his disciples, hey, like everything you've seen me do, you're going to be able to do even greater things. And they can, like, replay over the course of the last three years of their life with him, like, all of the things he's done. And he's saying, you're going to be able to do even greater things, which is where this kind of idea about impossible stuff kind of begins. So Jesus taught with authority that no one had ever heard before. You know, Jesus... um, he confronted the, the religious and social powers of the time. He's a guy who welcomed the outsiders. And he did this other thing. He healed people. He healed people. Now, it's, if you were to read the life and ministry of Jesus in the Bible, the one thing you absolutely cannot avoid is that he managed to do and accomplish miraculous healings. Now, whether or not you believe those things, it's a different story. But you can't read Jesus' life and go, "Well, he didn't," you know, "he just taught some nice things and he welcomed the strangers." You'd have to also get to a place where he was healing people. And for us, we kind of, we kind of get and we're okay with like what he taught, like that makes sense to us. But healing is weird. Healing is kind of a weird thing. It's almost like, for most of us, I think in some ways. Healing, as we look at Jesus' life and ministry, is one of those things we go, well, that's kind of the acceptable mythology that everybody kind of lumps in with Jesus. Like, I'm sure he did lots of things, and, ah, oh, yeah, maybe some people imagined some things about him that were kind of awesome. That you know, he was a healer. He was. We kind of have this acceptable mythology. But we have this idea that maybe, maybe God could heal people in a limited capacity. Like, you know, maybe emotional or relational or things like that that we kind of relate to. But the idea of healing is a little bit crazy. You know, because I think for a lot of us, the notion of healing, at least any like present models we have of it, it's basically kind of like a, like a circus of manipulation. We've seen people on TV, we've heard about people who are a traveling road show, who have some kind of bizarre scheme where they're up by radio figuring out which people have which issues and they call them out from the stage as if God gave it to them. And it's like, well, I don't know if I've, it kind of put kind of a pretty bad spin on this whole idea of healing. So we kind of let it go kind of have this sense of like, well, that was for a different time, and because people sometimes associated with Jesus or with the church have given the idea of healing such a bizarre take, that maybe we have to kind of let it go altogether. I just want us to wrestle with a question, though. What if God, despite all the ways people have abused it or manipulated it or corrupted it, what if he still heals? What if that's still what God intends to do in our lives? Now, I realize the, the idea of what if is intentional, just for a moment. Because I want you to consider, just for those of you who are incredibly skeptical about this notion, that what if in the realm of possibility God still wants to do something that's impossible in our lives? That we would otherwise say this is incredible and impossible and not likely for me. What if God still, despite every all of the bad press about people who have abused it, still wants to heal? That's what we're Jesus, as we come into the room today, we know that there's not a single person in this place who is above some measure of healing, of restoring brokenness. Every single person in this room. This is a room full of people in process, a room full of broken people who you have met or are presently meeting in their lives. Jesus, we don't approach today with a cautious optimism. Nor do we approach it with any kind of arrogant certainty about the out the necessary outcomes. But today, Jesus, we come before you in boldness, in faithful, humble, confidence. Father, we know that that you do things that we cannot explain, and you don't do things that we cannot explain. So, Father, for just for a moment, in whatever for whatever reason we wound up here. However, we decided to show up today, whether we were coerced or tricked or (laughs) we really intended to be here, that you might do something. God, would you speak to us in a little bit of stillness before all of the chaos and the bean dip and the Super Bowl ads and everything else that happens today, might you speak to us, Jesus, in stillness, about where you intend to bring about wholeness and healing in ways we might not have expected. So speak to us, Father. Father. So we start to realize, maybe in some capacity, our deeper needs, might you continue to speak to us throughout the service, that we might come to you humbly and boldly to seek your healing today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, now, if you got a bulletin, in that bulletin is an outline. You can take that out and follow along. I would say, probably more so than most times when I'm teaching, you, you're going to need to look at the outline. There's some, like, graphic. I, I had, you know... I have unbelievable graphic skills. You can take a look at the graphic charts I drew in there. They're really, I mean, it's remarkable. And, you know, I, I should consider another career as a graphic designer. But you can see some of the graphics there. there. You could, it'll help you follow along a little bit. Um, so, anyway, let me ask why you're doing that. Um, if you got the compass this week, you might know where this is going. What are some things that you know of that are all, I'll give you some examples first. then you're going to. So I'll give you a second to think about it. But what are some things that you know of that always come in necessary pairs? In other words, this is what I mean. That there's a complement to this one. So, like, for instance, macaroni and cheese right that's not hard it's not macaroni and like pimentos it's macaroni and cheese right you know that it's batman and right you know you might try this with peas and carrots. carrots right okay now so you're with me now what are some things that necessarily go together peanut butter and what jelly right good salt and good not the wrap the group right that's what you're talking about yeah yeah obviously because all right it's, it's christmas thank you yes exactly good what else oil and what or vinegar good else? Cool. In in and out, that was great, yes, (laughs) perfect, what else, what's that, Laurel and Hardy, Hardy. yes, just a little blast from the recent past, not very far, but just a little bit, a little bit ago, yeah, it's not to say that some people are older than others, Laurel and Hardy, for the high school students in here, it's a classic comedy duo, anyways, uh, other folks, what else, chips and salsa, yes, good, what else, up and down, good, yes, of a newtonian idea here What up and down tom up support. And what tom and, tom and jerry good i was gonna say tom and jones no not not really. okay go what else huey lewis and the news <laughs> there's no huey lewis without the news they're everything what chocolate chip cookies and milk yep we can end right there that was so good. yeah there are necessary pairs throughout all of i mean there's things that go together and we could we could spend all day talking about them i know you'd like for me to spend our time doing that but there are ne- there's one necessary pair that you see throughout the life and ministry of jesus it always goes together in some capacity sometimes it's explicit where the bible just says this, these two things are together and other times it's not quite as explicit but it's always there and i want to show you this right here it's You can look almost anywhere in the Bible, but I'll just show you right here. Luke 9, chapter 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Now, I'm going to come back to what the apostles were doing at the very end of this message, so we'll come back to that in a moment. But here's what Jesus says. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Now, here's what this is. Remember when you were, like, in kindergarten and you had show and tell, right? Some of you are like, I don't know what that is. So you can nod. It's okay. I can I just, yeah, show and tell, right? Show and tell is you bring your stuffed animal in or your toy and you talk about how great it is or you bring a picture of your dog and whatever, that kind of thing, right? You, you, you would show it and tell it. Now, I would say in some, in, in many ways, what you talk about Jesus is you actually have it reversed. It's actually tell and show. It sounds weird. Like, nobody has a jelly and peanut butter sandwich. That's even hard to say, right? Nobody has... Salsa and chips, but you get the idea. It flips over backwards. Jesus is talking about something called the kingdom of God. And then what he's doing is he's demonstrating it by showing what it looks like. So you have this proclamation, as you would sort of say, that's kind of the Christian word of it, proclamation, and then the demonstration of what this is. Now it's really important as we talk about what this looks like to kind of give you a sense of what this kingdom of God thing, why it's such a big deal and why it matters. Okay, so it's a big deal, in fact. Part of the reason why Jesus is not believed by a lot of people in the first century, and even today, among the Jewish community, is because of the way he understood and talked about this thing called the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to throw to a graphic in a second. Will you throw the first graphic on the screen? The big screen? Okay. Sharp graphics, you guys. I I don't need to take a bow right now, but, I mean, that's hot stuff. Thank you. Yeah, I know. No, yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome, really. You're welcome. All right, here we go. Now, what I want you to understand is, in the first century, in the Jewish mind, here's what's understood. The age in which people live, this is the what sometimes not just called the present age, it's called the present evil age. I mean, this is where bad stuff happens. There's disease, there is captivity, there's oppression. For the first century Jewish mind, you have the Romans are actually occupying the, the Jewish land. I mean, this is like, they're, they're under oppression and captivity by a foreign power. Now, there's a belief then, in looking at scripture, that there will come a time when that day will end, and it will usher in a new age, the age to come. This is the age of healing. This is the age of righteousness. This is the age of justice. This is the age, in, in many circles in Judaism, you have this picture of um, the res- resurrection of the dead. So you have all of these things that are going to come eventually that are in this age to come. Now, at the, the, the person who will usher in that age to come is a person called the Messiah. You with me? Now, when that person shows up, all of the bad stuff is immediately supposed to stop because God's holy army of angels will come in, militarily conquer people, will uplift the righteous. Will I mean? Well, this is like God's issue. This is the way it's supposed to work. Now, for Jesus, the way He describes this thing. Remember, there's going to be healing, everything you would ever expect in a restored creation in the age to come. Go to the next graphic. Again, I know. You're welcome for that graphic. All right. Now, here's what happens when Jesus, his ministry begins. He shows up in this present evil age talking about this future. This, he's talking about something called the kingdom of God, which is describing the age to come. And he's saying, he says these words. You can read it at the, beginning, at the very beginning of Mark. He says it this way. The very beginning of, of Jesus' ministry in the book of Mark. So it's like this. Hey, everybody. Great news. You can change your life now. God's kingdom is right here, which means the age to come is right here. The kingdom of God is where, it's basically one way to describe it is where everything God wants to happen, happens. That's the kingdom of God. And he says, you guys, congratulations, great news, everybody celebrate. You can turn your life around. The kingdom of God, God's great news is right, his kingdom is right here, right now. And they're like, you can imagine people with the expectation of the previous graphic. They're like, wait, how come the Romans are still here? How come my mom's getting sick? How come they're still injustice? How come I just got robbed? How come I've been cheated? And then Jesus is also doing these things that they can't explain, which is that he starts healing people of blindness, of people who are deaf, people who are possessed. He, start, he raises a guy from the dead in John chapter 11, and all of these things that are supposed to come in the future age start happening during the life and ministry of Jesus, which means, there is this kind of convergence of what God, God's future is coming together in the present. But the present age is not yet finished. It means it's still fading away. So here's, what, here's why this is so troubling for people. If Jesus is living and acting as the Messiah, why is everything still kind of not awesome? And yet, why does God's power still kind of show up in and through him in some miraculous way? And what does it mean for us? So the present age, according to this super hot graphic, will eventually fade away. And there will be a time when Jesus comes again. You see Jesus written twice, again, clever graphic. You see Jesus comes again, and at that time, the work he began in this kingdom project is going to be what's called consummated, finished. It means all the things that we expect and hoped about God would show up fully in Jesus' second coming. Now, some of you are like, that's bizarre. I know it's bizarre. This is what Christians, this is what the Bible describes. Now, we live in that gray box. We live in what's called what some scholars will call the now and the not yet, or the already and the not yet. Meaning God's kingdom purposes are at work now, but they're not yet finished. Which is why you have moments of great healing. You have people breaking addiction. You have people showing their, God's power showing up in their lives in unbelievably powerful ways. And yet, people still die. And yet there's still disease. And yet there's still injustice because these two things are happening at the same time: the present evil age and God's future breaking through into the present. All right a lot there. Everybody kind of clear on that? If it's even a little bit not clear, that's okay. Just a little bit that you're there. This is what you have to understand what Jesus is doing. He's initiating this thing called the kingdom of God, but that work is not yet completed. There will be a day when it is, but it's not yet. So we live in this now time, which God is doing these incredible things, but it's not yet finished. Now, good. Thank you. There you go. Amen. It's good. Now, we can can scratch the screen. You can come back to my awesome face. Um, Now, my son asked this really great question. Which I'm sure, especially if you're new, but everybody, whether or not you're new to Jesus, new to the whole experience, everybody's asked this question, which is, Dad, maybe you need to say the word Dad, but Dad, why aren't there the things that happened in the Bible still happening today? Like, was that sort of for a different era, and now we're kind of, does that not happen anymore? How come that doesn't happen? It's a very, very fair question, because everyone asks it. At the time of Jesus, even at the time of Jesus, even immediately following, like, a miracle, People would approach him and say, give us a sign that you're the, you're the Messiah. And he's like, I just did. There's a guy right there who used to be blind. Yes, but you did it on the Sabbath. So are you really, give us a sign that you're the guy. And so there's like all the, he's like, okay. And basically what he ends up saying, I'm paraphrasing here is, I gave you guys enough signs. I have shown you what you need and it's still not enough. I could give you everything you possibly want for the people who walked with, with Moses out of Egypt. God Shows up in this power, what's called his manifest presence, meaning his, like, God's everywhere, but there's moments where his, his closeness can be felt. His manifest presence, it's, I mean, it is laser beams, it's lightning and smoke and pillars of fire, and everyone's like, oh, that's amazing, look at God's presence. Forty days later, after Moses goes up to talk with God, they have completely forgotten him. God, show us where you are, you've abandoned us, you're not even here. I mean, they literally start worshiping another God because they forget. Which means the issue, now this is true of throughout all of this whole conversation with with Jesus, with God's people and even in the life and ministry of Jesus. Which is, God is at work doing things and we don't tend to see it. I mean, even if we did see it. Think for instance, if we saw something so miraculous and so powerful and we told our grandkids or our great grandkids about it. They'd probably go, you know what, that old coot was crazy. You didn't really see that stuff. Which means there's some other factor That enables people to participate and know about and understand these kinds of things. It's something that I would say probably looks basically, the best word for this is the word faith. That God's at work doing things and seeing things not with our own eyes, but with the eyes of faith. What God is up to and what he's doing in this now but not yet kind of world. Now one of the ways God demonstrates himself in his power is in healing. This is what Jesus points to often, in fact, in the book of John. The word for miracle isn't the word miracle, it's the word sign. And always it's, this is me telling you guys about what I'm up to and what I'm doing. It points you to God's future right now. So I want to read to you, and we're going to talk a little bit about a story in which there's a healing. And maybe you connected it in this way, and we'll talk about it what it might mean for us. Now when Jesus returns, this is Luke um, 8.40, it says this, When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now Jesus has this reputation of doing ministry and healing people, so people are kind of looking forward to seeing him. Verse 41. Then a man named Jairus, I have to say, by the way, I have a friend whose name is spelled exactly the same way. he goes by Jairus. So when It's I, like his mom did not pronounce his name correctly. So for the rest of it, he's Jairus, and nobody ever calls him either. We always call him Jarvis, because that's more fun. But anyway, you needed to know that. Write that down. Okay, right anyway, There's a man... <laughs> There's a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader who came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Now, I want to go back to this person, in Jairus. Jairus. It's hard for me to say Jairus. So i was saying Jarvis. I'll go back to this person, in Jairus. Here's this person who is a synagogue leader, which means in the community he's a respected person who presumably has his life together. And he's a person who's not the kind of person who's supposed to be asking for help. And probably in some cases, we could probably get the sense that if he's going to Jesus, the rest of the members of the religious elite community might be looking at him and going, why are you going to that guy? Because he claims he's operating as if he's the Messiah. And it's clearly not because we still see the evil age around us. So what's the deal? Why are you going to this person? Now there's this massive crowd around Jesus. Presumably, every single person there wants something from Jesus. Everybody there is going, I got a need, and I need you to, need you to help me with it. I'm so desperate for your help. And there's this guy, the synagogue leader, who manages to push his way through and say, amidst the crowd, I need your help. I have an urgent need. My daughter is in real trouble, and I don't know what to do, but I need your help. Now, I think there's something we have to point out here. I think it's particularly powerful for us. I think it points to where we live in Orange County in our own life, and our own whatever we understand from our our sort of out there Instagram, Facebook, Vine kind of life that is sort of a projected image of how we are. I think it's really important for us. It's a really critical question because we all share an issue the same as Jairus, which is for See, I can't even say gyrus, which is this right here. We have a pressure to appear perfect that often outweighs our need to seek help. We live in a community of people who will say, well, you know what, I'm just, I'm, the best way to say is is I'm, I'm, I'm relatively private. I don't want people to know about stuff. But I don't mind publishing stuff about my kids' successes or my own successes or things that have happened to me that make you believe that I'm really perfect. And when it comes down to the, really, the things that really matter in my life, I'm not sure I can actually seek help because then everybody would know I'm not perfect. This is, I would say this is probably as much of a plague as anything else in our community are going, I would, t- I would take a next step into something like Rooted, but someone will ask me about, in a community of people, they might ask me to be vulnerable and share something about how I'm not perfect. Then they'll know. We have such a pressure to be perfect. And it inhibits our ability to say, God, I need help. I publicly need to come forward and say, I am in need of help. And I need ever despite all the embarrassment that might happen, everybody's going to know I'm not perfect. Trust me, I understand this pressure person who's supposed to lead a community, who's supposed to kinda of have their act together. I feel a pressure to be perfect. I feel a pressure to like kinda of, well there's certain things like there's a lot of pressure. The pressure my family feels about that. It is it is it is everybody's reality in this room, including my own. It is hard to say I need help. And if there's anything we get from this guy Jairus is that he is a person who has the, the need has finally outweighed this necessity for public perfection. Now, as, he's, as Jesus looks at him, he starts to talk to him. When they engage in this conversation, some of you know this story. I'm just going to paraphrase it really quickly. A woman comes up whos who shouldn't be even be in public by the first century standards. She's bleeding, and it's, it's been humiliating for her for a number of years. She reaches out and touches Jesus and basically steals a miracle from him right there. Like, he's walking. The crowd's pressed up against him. She steals a miracle. Jesus feels the power go out of him, and he goes, wait, wait, who touched me? Which the disciples are like... It's like, it's like a, it's like a subway in Tokyo. I mean, everybody's pushed up against them and he's like, who touched me? Everybody's touching each other. It's like packed in there. And then he has this conversation with this woman. Oh, you know, he's talking to her and you know, he dignifies her with his healing. It's this beautiful moment. And you have to be wondering that Jairus is going, hey, hey, hi. cool. You know, um, she's bleeding. That's bad. Bleeding's bad. My daughter's di- dying. Di- I, this is clearly not as urgent for you as it is for me. And she, this woman who came in here, not supposed to be in public because she's unclean, is out here touching Jesus, and I need him to come to my house right now. Glad that you're healed. Glad this has happened to you, but you stole my miracle. You have to imagine the desperation of a father. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting it. I'm not sure this would happen. This is how I would be in, the, in that moment. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking to this woman, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Wait a second, that, you said you were going to come to my house, you know, it's like, this is, and then this woman comes in, and now all the hope is lost, everything that we thought was going to happen, someone cuts in line, and it's over. Now we know the story of lost hope, every single person in this, in this room has a story of lost hope. We believe for something, we, we hope for something, we prayed for something, get people praying for us, and it didn't turn out the way we thought it was supposed to. We continue to suffer, or they continue to suffer, or things didn't work out. Our marriage never really got healed. The addiction that we suffer, or that a family member suffered, never really got resolved. They never started a recovery process in any capacity. We've had our own health issues. We have our own secrets or regrets that never got mended, and we still live with shame. And we still wonder, is it really going to happen because we've been praying for this, but it didn't work out. So we know. We know about lost We know how it feels. And we have to imagine how Gyrus is. get help, and it's over. I risked everything and put myself out there. I had nowhere else to go. I faced public ridicule to go to Jesus and say, can you please, please help me? And Jesus says, I think there's two really offensive moments in this passage. Here's the first one. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she'll be healed. For me, I do not know about how you perceive it. This phrase, just believe, is so insulting to me. Just believe? Really, Jesus? You're just telling me to just believe? Is it really that simple? Because I've just believed, I've just prayed for people, I've just been a part of expecting you to do something, and you didn't come through. And now, after it's all said and done, when my daughter is dead, you tell me just just believe? There's no just believing. There's believing. There's courageous, bold, unlikely, impossible kind of believing, but just believing. I don't get that. I can imagine Jairus saying something. How can you say that? For me, I connected an earlier passage in Mark. There's a passage in Mark where Jesus heals a guy's kid from when he's about to heal a guy's kid from uh, demon possession. And here's the dialogue they have. And I connect with this. See if you connect with this idea. But if you can do anything, this is the Father speaking to Jesus, but if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us, meaning my son's got this demon possession. Can you help us? Verse 23. If you can, Jesus said, Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Now we're like, okay, we get that, the just believing part. Check this out. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I connect with that guy. Look, I know that you're supposed to do great stuff, God. I believe that you can do great things. I believe you have healing power. I believe in the, the future that you have intended for recovery and hope for the world can happen in the present. But I just, I, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So I think for Jairus, he's probably more akin to that guy in my own, my own understanding here. Let me just kind of give you a sense of what happens to Jesus and Jairus here in this daughter. Verse 51. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except for Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but asleep. How insulting is that. You have all these people who have heard this horrible news about the synagogue leader, an important person in the community. And the way in which you show support, one of the ways, is that the whole community gathers to wail and mourn with the family. So they're wailing and mourning and they're all outside the house and they're just packed in. They're all around this family. And then Jesus says, she's not dead, she's asleep. How dare you? We we know what dead is. We've seen dead before. She's dead. It's a tragedy. Stop making light of it because they don't know Jesus. Look at their reaction. They laughed. they don't understand, when there's a misunderstanding, there's always a pair that goes with that. Misunderstanding and mockery. And they go, you don't, you're so insane, Jesus. How insulting are you to say that to us in this moment? She's asleep. So they laugh at him. And I get that. I get why they would do that. Then Jesus does this, verse 54. But he took her by the hand and he said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, which I think is kind of funny. Get up. And then he's like, you know what? Coming back from the dead, is vi- it's a very taxing on We need to get her something to eat. She's probably exhausted. I don't know why that detail is in there, but she needs to eat. Maybe it's to, maybe it's to validate that she's actually alive. I mean, who knows? Like, dead people don't eat. Give her something to eat. See? She's alive. I don't know. Verse 56. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Now, the reason why I think this is remarkable. Remember, if Jesus is out to kind of form a following and build a religion, which he's, not, he's intending on bringing about God's kingdom purposes, everything else is sort of the outcome of that. But if he was just trying to be sort of a popular leader guy, he's got a whole crowd of people who have just mocked him, A. B, probably there's a group of people, this isn't in the scripture, so I'm interpreting here. But there's a huge crowd of, a peop- crowd of people that were around him before at the last moment. More than likely, when they saw Jesus was where he was going because they'd already done it before, followed him to Jairus' house. If ever there was a moment to have a Super Bowl-sized picture PR moment, it's this one. Everybody, come in. You, you didn't believe me, but check her out. See all the? I ask all the whalers. They saw her. She was dead. They all. Hey guys, I'm Jesus. I'm Messiah. The present age is happening. Woo! No. about a circus act. This isn't about a sideshow. This is about healing someone who needed healing, and I don't need the attention, and I don't want the fanfare. I just want this person to be healed. I want you to understand, as, as, as a church, when we start talking about things like a healing service, people imagine a circus sideshow. And this is not about any one person in this room who has a particular healing power. It is about God's power in our, in our midst. It is not about trying to gain public acclaim for this, it is about giving credit to God for what he, he does. Now, this is different than, for, for as far as Jesus goes, this is different than any other of the traveling sort of reputed healers of the time period. He wasn't, trying to gain a, he wasn't trying to gain money, and he wasn't trying to gain attraction from this, he was just simply bringing about the show and tell of God's kingdom. I'm going to tell you about this, and I'm going to show you it. And you, you get to believe with eyes of faith. Now, in Jesus is this convergence of humility and power. And the question for us is, what does that then mean for us as we kind of come today and respond and we start talking about what it means to come forward for prayer in a moment? You know, I I told you that at the beginning of this, we started kind of booking it with with Luke chapter 9. Jesus' disciples had just returned from doing something. Let me show you what his disciples were doing. When the apostles returned, they reported Jesus what they had done. And this is where we started. Look at this. This is what they had just done. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim, tell, the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Show. To disciples. Like, they're like, hey, you guys, I'm giving you all the authority and power to go do what I just did. Heal and cast out demons and talk about the kingdom of God. Show and tell the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's right. Then look what they did. So they set out, went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. That's what they did. Now, the question that we run up against, we start talking about this kind of stuff is, well, does that, is that, is that charge still the same for us? Do we still do the same thing? Is that still for the church or is that just for them? Or does God intend, without fanfare, without trying to create some kind of Super Bowl stunt, does God still intend to bring about healing in people's lives? People who are, like all of us in this room, afraid to admit that they need help. Does he still intend to bring about help for those people who would receive it? People still need help from generation upon generation. They need God's supernatural power in their life. You know the early church is no different. You know, what does it look like to live out this kind of desperation of gyrus and the need for our help for our unbelief? This is where I feel like our worlds merge. Desperate need. It might be a physical need. It might be an emotional need. It might be a relational need. There might have been something in your life that you need help for that has to come against this other picture of, I don't want anybody to know I'm not needing help, and I also need help with my unbelief. I want to believe, help my unbelief. Because this is bizarre, impossible kind of stuff. In a second, I'm going to invite you to come forward. We're going to stand, the band will come up, and we're going to sing. You're going to get a chance to come forward for some, with some of our folks who are part of our prayer team. There will be no circus, there will be no shaming, there will be no public declaration of whatever it is you tell them that you want prayer for. But here's how it will go. You'll stand up. We'll pray for a moment. I'll have you come forward when you want. And what they'll say to you is, and you'll need to say it in a sentence. Okay, so they're going to say, how can I pray for you? And you just simply can say, I need help for or prayer for a sentence. Don't start with, let me tell you the story. (laughs) It started five years ago, whatever. It's just like, I have been suffering under this. I have this addiction. I have this secret. I have this pain. If it's appropriate, if you have some kind of physical pain, if it's appropriate, like they might put their hand, like if it's a knee or an ankle or a shoulder, they might put their hand on that spot to pray specifically for that. They might. What they'll do probably is they'll ask you to talk about. No, what they'll do is the Bible describes is they'll talk about anointing you with oil, and it's not like there's a magic. There's no magical potion in the, you know, in this oil. It's just it's olive oil. It's not it's not from like the Garden of Gethsemane. Or, you know, it's like it's just oil. And it is a marker of God at work. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a marker of being chosen. It's a marker of being specially selected. It's all it is. It's just, a, it's just a marker. But the Bible calls us to do it. When we come forward in humility and we say, "God, would you help me?" Despite the fact that everybody will know I'm not perfect, and they'll pray in Jesus' name. They'll pray boldly. They won't pray a prayer that's like, "Well, we're not sure of you what you'll do," but whatever. they're going to pray. God, would you bring about healing? Would you do this in a miraculous way? Now. Does God answer every single prayer in the way we would like? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. I wish he did. There's people who have been told that people who have had these experiences have been told, the reason God didn't answer your prayer the way you would have liked is because you didn't have the faith. I don't know about that. Some incredibly faithful people I know that have had unanswered prayers. Paul's one of them, the Apostle Paul, who prayed three times that God would remove something from him and God didn't. The Apostle Paul, this guy wrote like a lot of the Bible. You don't have those credentials. You have also, my guess is that probably every single person who had an extended period of sickness and then death probably prayed, please don't let me die and let me be healed. And every one of those people who did actually die, their prayer wasn't answered. You with me? So people do have prayers that aren't answered by God. The way God actually works, in some cases you have God, God healing people in an instant moment. It does happen and it's amazing. And even someone who's a pastor is supposed to not be amazed by that stuff is always amazed. People who go, I used to have this pain and it's gone. I go, what? For real? I said. There are some people who are healed by degrees, that over the course of time, things begin to improve. Things get better. And there are times where God doesn't do what we want him to do. Turns out, he isn't our genie. But he calls to us and says, why don't you guys call out to me and ask for healing? Ask for it. Seek it with boldness and with persistence. I want to bring about God's kingdom future, my future into the present in a powerful way. I think for some people, too, one of the things, the last thing I should say is this. For some people, the experience of God is not that he would bring an end to suffering, but that he would enter into suffering with us. It's hard for people to understand because we expect that God would end suffering. This is what God's will is. But sometimes what you see in the Bible is God weeping and standing with us and among us during suffering. And all of those things are possible today. Here's what it says in James, just to give you a sense of where this comes from. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. We're going to do that. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. We're also going to do that. In the room, some of you may not come forward. You will get an opportunity to sing. You will sing boldly. You will sing prayers set to music. Sing those prayers with great boldness. In your singing, you will uphold the people. Who are coming forward for prayer, they will, they will know and sense that your prayer is being activated by music and your own heart towards it. They will know it. In so doing, you will actually enable them to be a part of this in a fresh way. So everybody in the room, whether you're singing or you're praying, you have a part. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church is what we're going to do. To pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. You can continue to read James chapter 5. Some of that scripture will be on the screen later. But there's this sense that says, okay, we're going to go in boldness. Help our unbelief, God, because we need your help. Despite what everybody might know about us or think about us, we need your help. We need your help. We can't do this on our own. So here's what I want you to do. Kind of, we've never really into the services this way, but I want to look in it this way. Would you close your eyes? And I want you to sit again in the stillness, in the silence. I want you to ask God, where is it that there is brokenness or hurt Where is it that there's illness or sickness in my life that I'm not paying attention to, that I need your healing hand? Where is it? So for just a moment, in the stillness, ask God to reveal that to you. Of the service, and we're aware we are in need of healing. Father, as people will consider in this room what it is like, what it might be like to actually have to get up and to walk forward, might you give them the boldness and the confidence to know that nobody in this room will judge them for getting up and admitting that what everybody already knows that none of us in here is perfect. So, God, would you meet us in this place powerfully? Might your Holy Spirit work in powerful and authoritative ways in our lives. Might this be a day of great transformation and great hope and great victory. So Jesus, we respond to you now with great courage. Whether it's in song or in prayer, we respond to you with great hope and great courage. It is in your name we pray. Amen. stand together and we'll sing and we'll pray.